Hey guys, welcome to the Filming with Josh podcast. I'm your host, Joshua Milligan, and today is a new day and a brand new year. Welcome to 2024, and welcome to a new episode of the Filming with Josh podcast. This is episode number 103, Changes or Improvements I Made in 2023. This is the Filming with Josh podcast, brought to you by Rustic River Media. Welcome to the videographer's home for tips, tricks, and how to make flicks. Thanks for listening in to another episode of the Filming with Josh podcast. If you are new to the podcast, Filming with Josh is your home for tips, tricks, and how to make flicks. Here on the podcast, we talk about all things video, from script writing and storyboarding to how to price your work. We talk about it all on the podcast. We also have a Facebook group called Filming with Josh, so be sure to go over to Facebook, type in Filming with Josh, and ask to join the group today. The Filming with Josh Facebook group is a continuation of this podcast and is also a place where you can share your work, ask for feedback, and things of that nature. It is a private group, so go to Facebook, type in Filming with Josh, and ask to join the group today. If this is your first time listening to the podcast, I want to make it known that we are available on Apple. Google Play, Spotify, and Podbean. And as of a few months ago, we also became available on YouTube if you want to watch the podcast instead. And if you're listening to the podcast on YouTube, now you know that it's also on Apple, Google Play, and Spotify. We only have four video episodes. This is actually number four that's on YouTube uh, for video podcasts because we didn't start that to episode 100. Um, But all 99 prior episodes that were not video podcasts are still available on Apple Play, uh, Apple Podcasts, Google Play, Spotify, and Podbean. So you can be sure to look up all of those episodes there. Today's podcast is a reflection basically on 2023. It's kind of a recap of my year, uh, tough moments, good mo- moments, improvements to my work, improvements to my life and family, um, changes I made to my business, things like that. I have a whole list in front of me, so you'll probably see me looking at my iPad from time to time as I kind of scroll through my list. Um, but I just want to reflect on some things that. Um, took place in 2023 and kind of how my year went and use that as a catalyst to springboard me into 2024. I'm not going to really talk about 2024 in this podcast simply because as I started typing up notes from 2023, it got really long. And so I already know going in, this is probably going to be a longer podcast. So as such, I'm not even going to discuss remotely what I plan to do in 2024. I'm just going to recap 2023. Um, but I'm going to talk about all kinds of things from tough moments to life changes to equipment I bought. I know a lot of you listening are gearheads. So yes, there is a section toward the end where I'm going to talk about all new equipment I bought this year. Um, and and we're also going to talk about just some overall improvements to my workflow uh, that happened in 2023, things like that. So this is basically a reflection of 2023. And today is New Year's. So Happy New Year's if you're listening to this today on January 1st, which is the day this is coming out. So without further ado, I'm going to start looking at my list. And uh, like I said, you'll see me if you're watching this, you'll see me look back and forth on my iPad here, but it's just because I'm going through my extremely long list. (laughs) So I want to start with tough moments from 2023 because I want to go ahead. It's not that I want to like get it out of the way, but I just want to talk about some tough things, some challenging things that happened this year to get the ball rolling and then jump into some of the positive things, which... If you look at the, the the tough moments list versus the positive like improvements and and good changes that happened this year, the tough moments is very very small. Um, so it's it's pretty much all positive from 2023. But I'd be lying if I said 2023 was like this perfect year because it was not. It was a tough, challenging year. It was actually one of the most challenging years in my life personally. Um, and so what I'm going to do is I'm going to talk about a few things, three in particular, that made this year really tough. The first is my daughter being born a month early. 
Um, my daughter, Ellie, or Elena, but we call her Ellie, Ellie Bug, L, L Bell, Ellie Font. We have a million names for her. <laughs> but Ellie, she was born a month early. In fact, when she was born, I was in the middle of day one of my biggest live stream event of the year. It was a really big event. Um, I had uh, a really big client. We had a team that I hired, sound guys, location, uh, so, location sound recorders that we had uh, there that was also doing like um, the in-house mixing as well as a live stream mixing uh, and recording all the audio. We also had uh, some camera operators. We had a whole team from, like my client had a whole dedicated team um, put together to help with this live stream event. It was a really big event. And we had been working for months to get all the pieces in place for this event. And we had like a, a single day of setup time. And then we had a three day li- like setup and testing and then three days of actually streaming the event. And we got through the setup day, but then on day one of the event, my wife gives me uh, a call. I was able to step out and answer it. And she told me that she was going to be uh, going to the hospital because they were probably going to go ahead and have our daughter uh, that day, (laughs) which was a month to the day uh, earlier than she was supposed to come. So I had to, in the middle of my live stream event, find someone to come and replace me so that they could direct the event. And this person like had no idea. They hadn't been there for any of the any of the coordinating of, of setting anything up or anything like that. Like I had to find someone and bring them in that day while I was in the middle of directing a live stream and show them what to do and then have them start doing it so I could leave and go to the hospital and then have them run the next several days of the event. It was really tough. And I did find someone, uh, his name is Scott, and Scott came and completely bailed me out. He did a fantastic job and was able to take over the event for me and was able to uh, keep the flow without it ever skipping a beat. And I want to thank Scott for that. Unfortunately, uh, Scott passed away a month or two after that happened. So he bailed me out and then passed away after. after. So that was a tough moment for me. Like I had to not only find someone to come in and, and take over the event, for me so I can go to the hospital and, and we have our, our baby a month early. But I also, that person I found who did come and who did successfully bail me out, that person then went on to pass away. And and it, it was just, man, it was just really tough. All of that was really, really tough. And beyond that, if that wasn't tough enough, when my daughter was born a month early, she was only three pounds and 15 ounces. So she was way too small to bring home. Technically, you could bring a baby home that small, but she had... Um, some other things they were checking in on that they wanted to monitor. So she ended up being at the hospital for close to a month. And, you know, praise Jesus, she came home uh, after uh, a little under a month and she was uh, perfectly fine and still is fine. But that was tough because I lost a month of work just about with her being at the hospital. And then even when she came home, it's not like I could just magically go back to work. We were bringing home a baby. Like it took us pretty much the entire time she's in the hospital just to get her over four pounds. And once we got her over four pounds and, and they monitored her, monitored her, you know, for like over three weeks and had us come and uh, they monitored us as we um, kind of slept with her and stayed with her at night just to make sure that she could handle that transition of coming home and being in a, in a crib. Um, after they monitored all that, they finally released her and we got to bring her home. But she was still only like four pounds when we brought her home. And so it's not like I could just magically go back to work, right? I, I had to help my wife take care of this premature baby who 
had like hardly any size. I mean, she was like holding a, a twig, <laughs> and and meanwhile also like keep my, my my son who was like eighteen months old from killing her because he didn't know, he doesn't know anything about babies, you know. And so it was just a challenging transition point. And so I lost a well over a month of work, probably closer to two months of work because of that. Because even when I did start going back to work, I wasn't really going back to work. I was just kind of like catching up on some stuff that was due and things like that. Uh, so I lost like two months of business. And guys, like two months of business is a lot. Like that's a whole lot of work to lose. Plus those two months, I wasn't out like getting new contracts and following leads and stuff like that. So from the moment she came early on June 13th, which ironically happened to be my mom's birthday. So I blame my mom for having her birthday the same day that Ellie was born. I think like she jinxed it or something. But um, from the moment Ellie came early to for like two months, three months, even four months after, business wasn't quite the same because not only did I miss work, but I hadn't been following up on new leads or anything. So I lost a lot of business and lost a lot of money during that part of the year, which as you can imagine, made things pretty tough. And then to top it off, we got hit with about $50,000 in medical bills and that's after insurance. Now we were supposed to have like an out-of-pocket max that was much less than that, but we've been fighting with the insurance company who's been fighting with the hospitals and with all these other places to try to get those bills back down to a reasonable level. But still as of today, like we haven't, I mean, that was six months ago and we still haven't gotten all that figured out. So we're still paying, you know, a lot of money per month right now because it's just doing our best to like not get into like a really deep financial hole. So we're, we're still paying money to try to like keep everything at bay until it's all worked out. And it just tough, man, just a tough, tough year financially because of that. To top it off, another tough thing that happened was my two biggest clients had changes in employment, pretty high up changes. Um, and these, these changes were to people on the marketing side and one, with one of my clients, it was just uh, the, the head person I typically work with and have been working with for over five years, she left her position. And when she did, um, it, it made it really tough. For, it was a medical client. made it really tough for that medical company to continue working with me because they hadn't found a replacement yet. And like the person that was in charge of working with me there, when that person left, it left a huge hole in that company. And it took them all year, and they still haven't quite found a replacement for her yet. And so I haven't really been able to do much business with it, with them this past year. And I've done a lot of business with them every year for like the last five or six years. So to miss out on pretty much a year's worth of work on them, like that's a huge chunk of revenue that I, I, I count on every year that I didn't get. And the other company, which is more of a tech company, they also had some changes at the top and it had a trickle down effect um, where some other people ended up leaving the company. And so I still do business with them and we ended the year really strong together, but therefore the first half of the year or so, we weren't doing near as much business as we had the three years prior. And so that also left a gaping hole. And then when you add on top of that, the fact that last year was a challenging year for people in, in any form of marketing, whether it's photo marketing, like, like corporate or business photography, or whether it's video like I primarily do, uh, or anything of the sort, really anything that has to do with marketing last year. It was a tougher year because businesses were a little tighter on their ad spend. And they were tighter on their money because there was some uncertainty in the market, uncertainty in the economy. There's a lot of inflation. We saw um, like not only were housing prices, uh, housing prices increasing, but at the same time, interest rates were going up. So people kind of quit buying homes. And there was like all these other things that happened. And I'm not in real estate necessarily, but 
but what I saw from the market in general is that a lot of people were just starting to kind of close down a little bit on how much that they were spending as opposed to the previous couple of years. Even during COVID, like Q4 of COVID, we were rocking and rolling. And, and same thing in 2021 and 2022. But in 2023, it just seemed like things all across the board and everybody I talked to that does uh, business or commercial type video like I do, um, pretty much everybody I talked to was kind of struggling a little bit this past year as compared to previous years. And so when you add all of those things together, it made it kind of a tough year. Now, I ended the year very, very strong. I had a great Q4. Um, one of the better Q4s I've had in a while. But the first three quarters of the year were really, really tough. And so those were some of the tough moments that happened this past year. And those aren't necessarily like all bad things. I mean, losing Scott was bad. Like, that was terrible. Um, and, and my condolences to him and his family. Scott was an amazing person. He worked with me at church um, uh, to live stream. And uh, just a great person, great live stream director. And, and again, he bailed me out. And I'll, I'll forever be grateful for that. Um, but like... Losing him was obviously terrible, but everything else, it's not like you can't come back from the other stuff. Like Ellie's fine now. Like she's over six months old. She is still tiny. She little, little bitty baby still. Like she's six months old and she's barely over 12 pounds. <laughs> um, so she, to some people, she's like a newborn size or just over newborn size. So she's still really small, but she's healthy as a horse. Um, she's really smiley. So that's been great. Um, and, you know, we bounced back, like I said, financially in Q4, uh, but it was tough there for a while. So these weren't like detrimental things. Losing Scott obviously was, but everything else was not detrimental. Um, it just, they were just tough moments or tough things that happen um, that made the year pretty tough. Um, so tough, tough year in a lot of ways, um, but at least it ended strong and ended on a positive note which kind of leads me to some of the changes and improvements that I want to talk about. And the first is obviously my daughter being born. Ellie was born, which was a huge improvement uh, to our family and to my life. I'm so, so happy to have a daughter now. Um, so now I have a, a two-year-old son and a six-month-old daughter. It has been amazing. And that has been a big life change. And I would call that obviously an improvement, but it also led to some changes this past year for me as a business owner. Um, now having two kids, I felt even more compelled to make sure I'm, a, I'm around at home as much as possible. So that meant stepping back in some places on volunteer work. Uh, I like to do a lot of volunteer work. I still do volunteer work, but I had to step back a little bit. And on top of that, it meant having to really be consistent with trying to get off at or close to five o'clock every day and trying not to work on weekends. Now, obviously that's not always possible, right? If you have a shoot that goes into the weekend or that's on the weekend, which I had a few of those this past year, obviously you're going to, you're going to work on the weekend for that. Or if you have a deadline that you just have to hit and you're kind of behind, then you, you know, you may have to work on the weekend or, or, or late at night, but I did my very best this past year to really make sure I got off at five o'clock every day um, so that I could be available for my wife and for my kids. And I, I did everything I possibly could to make sure I didn't have to work the weekends. Um, and I, I felt like that was really healthy for my wife and I and for and for our kids, too, because they, they I mean, you know, my daughter, I don't know what her expectations at six months old are, but my son definitely expects to see me every day after work. Um, and, and my wife definitely needs the help. So those are some changes this past year, like really being being sure that I got off at a, at a consistent time every day and that I was available on weekends. So those were some changes that I made uh, this past year uh, that 
really, I, I would say I started that with Wilder, but with Ellie being born and, and now having two kids, I was, I was definitely a lot harder and stricter on that this year, uh, which was a change. Another change was I became more involved with live streaming at my church. Now, I said I backed off in some volunteer work, but I didn't back off completely. And, uh, and in some ways, I actually increased some of my volunteer, and that would specifically be at my church. So Oakwood is a church here in New Braunfels that I, I go to. It's a really big church. And I had already started last year doing some volunteer work with them, um, kind of helping out with their live streaming. But this year I, I started taking uh, a more consistent role, helping them out as much as I possibly could. I can't always be there on, on, on Sundays, but I'm there as much as I can. I, right now I'm averaging like once a month, um, which is... It doesn't sound like a lot, but you know, uh, to me, it's just it's it's a good way to 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 come when I can to help out with the church. I feel like God's given me um, knowledge about video. He's he's taught me some skills, and and I'm you know I'm no Steven Spielberg or anything, but I have some skills that I've learned over the last. 12, 13 years, and I wanted to find a way to use those skills or some of the knowledge I have to contribute back to God's kingdom. And so last year I started helping with the church, and this year I took more of a role in really helping out with the church. I did a lot more, I would say, at the beginning of the year before Ellie was born. Um, I was almost live streaming like every other week at one point. Now I'm doing about once a month, but I still took a more active role this year in helping out with that, which has been a great change. It, I don't know, it just feels great to go and help and uh, and to show up and to do what you can to give back and to not expect anything in return. Um, and so I, I started out by doing uh, running PTZ cams for them. Uh, and then after Scott passed away, uh, they had a hole where they needed um, someone to uh, direct uh, on some Sundays. So I kind of took over a director role, which is what I've been doing um, really this past year. You can hear there's my wife and two-year-old son and is the baby with her? I think the baby might be with her too. Uh, so for those of you watching, that's what you're seeing in the background back there. Uh, anyway, so I, I started like directing some of the live streams and stuff this past year, which was a, a really good change. And I've really enjoyed um, working on the live streams. It's just been a lot of fun. Um, I also got back into my daily Bible reading. So there's this uh, company that makes these books called She Reads Truth and He Reads Truth. And I have been reading a lot of He Reads Truth books. They basically take different chapters of the Bible and or different books of the Bible, I mean, and they make them into individual books. And then they have some like notes and things within them. And so I have been reading through a bunch of those. In fact, I got like three more for Christmas. And so I've been been tearing through those as fast as I can. Not not like speed reading, but you know I'm just been consistently reading every day, um, reading a section every day to start my day uh, as often as I can. And I had been I haven't been as consistent with my my daily readings over the past few years, but this year I started really ramping that back up, especially after Ellie was born. And I've really noticed how that's improved a lot of things in my life. One, it's brought me uh, more knowledge of scripture. Two, it's brought me closer to God. Um, and three, it's kind of given me some tools that have helped me to handle different things that I've experienced this year. And so get diving back into the Word and really do, being consistent with scripture reading, I think, has been a really great change. I've been trying to do that every morning before work. Um, that's like one of the first things I do is get up, make coffee, and then, and then read. And uh, sometimes Ellie will wake up and I'll hold her in my lap while I read. And that's just been a great way to start my day. And I feel like that's really helped me, um, not just in my personal life, but also professionally this year, uh, again, by giving me some tools and equipping me on, on how to handle things. So if you aren't doing daily scripture readings, I definitely... like. I definitely recommend it. I think it's amazing because one, you should be doing it anyway. If you are uh, a faith-based person, um, diving into the word, I think is, is is how you grow in your faith and like how you grow and, and, and learn more about Christ. But 
it also it simultaneously gives you a lot of tools on how to, to handle different adversities that you'll run into personally and professionally. So that's been something I've made uh, a change to this year is diving deeper into that. Um, and then lastly, uh, as, in terms of life changes or life improvements, I started really working on my fear of flying this year. So some of you who just heard that sentence probably <laughs> are, are, are wondering what the heck I'm talking about. Um, but if you know me really well, then you know that I am scared to death of flying. And the reason is uh, because years ago when I started working professionally in video, I was flying all over the world. I, I kept a tally sheet on my uh, iPad. And at one point, I think I had flown like 160 times in a span of like 18 or 20 months or something like that. Like I flew a lot for work. It was totally fine with it. Um, I, a lot of, I, I flew out of country. I flew out, uh, left the continent a bunch. I, I worked all over the world in my job. But in 2000, I think it was 2019, I had this chaotic trip trying to get home from Canada. And there were all of these chain of events that happened that were just not good. And then it, it all, all of those things kind of snowballed into my last leg of my trip home from Canada. And I had gone to Canada and worked a ton at the same place, like year after year after year. Um, so I had been there a bunch of times. But on the way home, there were all of these different chain of events that happened um, that I won't dive into. I could do a whole podcast on it. And if you want me to do a podcast on that, comment and let me know. Um, but there's all these chain of events that happened that were not good, that made it really hard for me to get home and get my equipment home. And it all just kind of snowballed into me having to get on a different plane than I was supposed to be on. And the plane that I did get on, um, the last leg of that flight was coming home from Salt Lake City. And uh, we had a bird strike on takeoff. And then after the bird strike happened, it took out an engine. And then the second engine was having some issues. And so the plane started having to circle Salt Lake a bunch, trying to dump fuel to um, make it safe to do an emergency landing. And in the process, as we would like churn, the plane would kind of dip because it didn't have a lot of power because it only had like part of one engine left. And so every time we turned, the plane would kind of dip and, and then it would gain altitude and then it would dip and then it would gain altitude and it would dip. And dude, I was scared to freaking death. And we finally landed safely. And again, like if you if you want more details on this, let me know and I'll do a whole podcast on the whole chain of events and, 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 and what happened on that particular flight. But the point being is after that flight, I just started having this huge fear of flying and I would have like these panic attacks every time I fly after that. And so I haven't taken as many out-of-state or out-of-country jobs since then. I, I still do. I've traveled out-of-state every year um, since that's happened, but I, I don't do it near as much because I, I can't stand flying. I literally will have sometimes like these panic attacks on the plane where I'm like rubbing my knees, I'm sweating, I'm like really, really afraid. And it's just like a psychological thing that, that got triggered from that flight. I mean, it's a really scary flight and I've just had a really hard time overcoming that. And it's interesting, right? Cause I used to fly on like float planes and bush planes in Alaska and stuff and just really crazy places, crazy flights in the Himalaya mountains and Pakistan and things like that. And, and it was totally fine, but it took that one flight. It's all it took to really, uh, to really get to me. So anyway, ever since then, I've been taking anxiety medicine in order to be able to fly. But this past year, I have been flying, uh, started flying more frequently for uh, a home building client of mine who's been sending me to different places across the country to do um, projects for them. And I, I, these are quick projects. Like I'll literally, I'll fly up one morning, I'll shoot that afternoon and fly back the next day. And so they're great projects. I get paid really well, but 
it meant having to fly a lot. And so I knew that like anxiety medicine will only get you so far. So just mentally, I've been really working on that this year. I've been diving deep in the word and just really praying about that and just kind of trying to work through the problems so that, you know, I think that my anxiety medicine is, is, is great. It's helpful, but there's, there's a root there. There's a root to the problem there. And so that's been something I've been trying to work through this past year. And I, I'm not going to say like I solved it by any means. I actually have a flight in here in a couple of days. Um, I'm doing a same client doing a shoot out of, out of state, flying out, shooting in the morning, flying back the next day kind of thing. Uh, and again, great job. But I, I, I'm, I'm less anxious now than I normally would be. Normally, today's Monday. Normally, I think I fly out like Wednesday. Normally, days before the trip, I'm like sick to my stomach thinking about the flight, but I'm not today. And so I'm, I am improving. And so like those improvements that have happened this past year have been uh, really helpful. So that's something I've been really improving this year by diving into the word, by really praying about it, mentally kind of working through my head that flying is pretty safe and just kind of reminding myself of that. And, and I, yeah, I still take anxiety medicine, but I, I definitely think it's the mental aspect and the spiritual aspect that's kind of given me some strength there. So that's been another change this year. It's just been really working on and improving my ability to fly again. Um, and I know that to some of you listening, that may sound crazy because uh, I never really talked about it before. And you've probably seen pictures of me working all over the world. And I did have worked all over the world, but um, it's been like pulling teeth to get me there ever since 2019. <laughs> but hopefully that will continue to prove going into this year. All right. So now I want to talk about like things I did to improve my network in 2023. Um, the first is I got really involved with GRTU. GRTU is the Guadalupe River Trout Unlimited chapter, which is the only Trout Unlimited chapter in Texas and is also the largest chapter of Trout Unlimited in the United States. And a lot of people don't know this, but in Texas, we actually have a river that sustains trout year round. It's the uh, the Guadalupe River, specifically the lower Guadalupe stretch south of Canyon Lake. Um, there's a huge lake called Canyon Lake, and it's got a big dam. And it, when they release water, it's the water comes off the bottom of the lake, and it creates this really cold tailwater. Um, and it happens to be right here in New Braunfels, where I live. And that tailwater holds trout year round. And we stock it in GRTU and Texas Parks and Wildlife stocks it every year. And then a lot of those fish survive even in the summer heat because how cold the water stays. And so we actually have a year round trout fishery right here in the town I live in. And that is amazing. It's the only trout fishery in Texas. And as such, Texas is a big state, and since we only have one chapter Trout Unlimited, we just happen to have the largest. And I've been volunteering a lot. I said I don't do a lot of volunteer. I've been pulling back on some of my volunteer work, but two places I've stayed volunteering. One has been with church, and the other has been with GRTU. I've been volunteering a lot with them, helping out with video and photo-related things, uh, helping them start live-streaming events, helping them with uh, Trout Fest this past year in terms of running AV. I, I filmed Trout Fest and donated a video about Trout Fest to GRTU. And I've been doing a lot of different things with them and eventually got elected this past November uh, onto the board. So I'm now a board member of the largest chapter of Trout Unlimited, which is really exciting to me because I love to fly fish. It's a huge part of what I like. It's a huge part of me and, and what I really like to do. Like I have basically three, three hobbies, filming slash photography, which I actually do for a living, <laughs> um, hunting and fly fishing. Like those are my three my three hobbies. So to be on, or three things that I, my three passions. So to be on the board of Trout Unlimited here uh, in uh, Texas is is pretty awesome. And how that's helped me grow in my network is a lot of other board members, pretty much all the board members are either other business owners or are people who are heavily involved in uh, businesses. And it, it's a good network of people to know 
and I've already seen opportunities develop from these relationships. And see, I, I, one time I knew this guy, he since passed away. Um, he used to duck hunt with me um, back, back when I was in college. He's an older gentleman and he was uh, a medical professional, but he was one of the most well-networked people I've ever met in my life. And he was one of the most successful people I'd ever met. And one thing I noticed about him was he was, uh, he, he served on a lot of boards in his life. He, he always talked about that and how serving on boards helped him to grow in his network and to develop his professional career. And so as a result, I've always wanted to, to do the same thing, become a board member of something that uh, I'm passionate about. And then through that, that's not why I do it, but through that, hopefully build my net, continue to build my network. And so as a board member, and even before I officially got elected, just through my volunteer work with GRTU, my network started to grow in areas I'm passionate about. And I've seen opportunities start to come from that for me to do work in an, in a uh, industry that I really enjoy. And so that's one thing I've done this past year is, is volunteer with GRTU, get elected to the board, and grow my network in an industry that brings a lot of joy to me. And I'm hoping that through that, I will continue to get opportunities to do work within the fly fishing industry, which is something I just really enjoy. And to, to add to that, another thing I did to improve my network this year is I did some collaborating with uh, some local fly shops, one in particular, um, where I would go out and uh, do different trips with them. And I would also shoot photographs for them while we were on these trips and like guided trips. And then also uh, just have been working on, I haven't finished, but because when my daughter was born, it kind of uh, all that chaos kind of put things on a pause, but we have been working on a short film and are going to work on it again this coming spring, hopefully finish it. Um, but we've been collaborating on a short film project and, and all of those things that collaborating that I've done, the photo and video work with this fly shop, um, and, and with other people too, not just the fly shop. There's been, um, some other people within the fly fishing industry that are really well known that I've been doing some collaborating with. And I've noticed that through that, again, kind of like volunteering on GRTU, I'm starting to see opportunities pop up to do business with an industry I'm really passionate about. So those are things that I've done this past year that have helped me grow my network, just volunteering, uh, and, and, and getting onto a board and then doing some collaborating. Um, and that's really helped me to, to grow in an industry that I would like to do more business in. Um, an, another thing I did to help me improve my network this year is I did a ribbon cutting with the local Chamber of Commerce. Um, I've been a member of the Chamber of Commerce here in New Braunfels for the last two or three years but I never did like an official ribbon cutting. And I've been in business for a long time. Like a lot of people think when you do a ribbon, ribbon cutting, it means that you're like opening a business. But that's not necessarily always the case. Like if you're part of a chamber, for example, you could do a ribbon cutting. That's just basically like an announcement of your business within the chamber. And I had never done that. So even though I've been in business for, this is going into my ninth year, July will be nine years that I've been in business. Even though I'm going into my ninth year, I hadn't done a ribbon cutting with the chamber. And so I, this past year, decided that would be a good way to kind of get my name out within the community. So I did a ribbon cutting. A lot of business owners came. And if you don't know anything about New Braunfels, Texas, we're a pretty big town. Um, we've got over 100,000 people here, and we're sandwiched right in between Austin and San Antonio. And so uh, it's hard to get business. I, I would say for a lot of times from Chamber of Commerce, like big business, the kind of business I want to do work with. I like doing businesses, uh, work with businesses that are pretty large because they typically have a larger marketing budget and they want to spend... Uh, money continuously throughout the year on multiple projects. Those are my favorite clients. Um, when you go to and, and you do 
work within a chamber, you tend to get more one-off, what I call one-offs, which are basically a client that wants a video for their website and then, or, or something like that, maybe TV ad or whatever. And once they get it, they, they're good. They don't need anything else for the next five or six years. Like they're happy, they're content. Like that's a one-off client. Whereas uh, like some of my larger clients, like my, my, um, some of my tech clients, some of my medical clients, they spend money on marketing throughout the year continuously every single year. So we're always in the middle of some sort of project together. Those tend to be my favorite clients for obvious reasons. However, um, having, uh, having one-off jobs are still great because they do help you just continue to have projects throughout the year to fill in gaps when your more annual or perennial clients aren't as, uh, as busy, like whenever you, there's a slow period. So I don't mind one-off jobs. They're just not, I'm, I, they're not like my favorite. However, I, I still see value in them. And so those are the kind of jobs you'll typically find at a chamber. Uh, you know, through through people you'll meet. And so I wanted to get more one-off jobs just to kind of help me this year, especially since, they, remember, I lost out on a lot of work. So after it was Ellie was born and we were home from the hospital, it helped me kind of get my business back up and running uh, after being out of work for a couple months. I did the ribbon cutting. And so what I did was is they put an announcement out that there was going to be a ribbon cutting and I made a, a brand video. I hadn't made a brand video since like 2016. And, and it was an okay brand video. It wasn't like exceptional simply because I have like hardly any like behind the scenes video of me shooting anything or anything like that, which I, I would like to have for brand video. But, you know, I worked with what I had, pulled some old footage, made a brand video where I talked about what all I offered, what all we, you know, what all we did and had some examples like, of, you know, different shots playing throughout the video while you heard my interview audio. And so I did that brand video. They played it at the beginning of the ribbon cutting and then I got up and spoke and answered questions. So that was a great way to help me get my name out there uh, here in the local community for those more one-off jobs with smaller businesses. Still great jobs to have. They're just, you're, you're typically not going to meet clients there that are, you know, making big decisions for really large businesses. Chambers just tend to have more small business owners. Not always, but they tend to. Um, but it's still been good for getting work in the local community, and I'm really glad I did that. Um, and then another thing I did this past year is I built tighter relationships with local marketing agencies. There are some local marketing agencies that I do business with. Um, essentially, what it, what 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 it, how it works is when they have a client that they're doing like a marketing plan for, and it is suggested that there needs to be a video, whether the client suggested or the marketing agency suggested, um, these marketing agencies will call me and offer me the opportunity to put together a proposal for the job. And the same is true with business photography. So through some of the marketing agencies that, um, that I've met, actually some of them through the chamber here, I've gotten uh, some work this past year and past several years, really, but this past year I've really tightened and strengthened those relationships with those marketing agencies. Uh, and they fed me more work because of it, more photo commercial photo jobs and more, uh, like one-off video projects, which have been great, great for me. And because I don't have to go out and do anything, like I just strengthen my relationship with them and they call me. So they're just sending the work my way when their client has a need for video. And that's been great. So I've been strengthening those relationships this past year, which has helped me uh, improve my network. And then lastly, I have this photography company that I partner with in Austin. I've been doing a lot of business with them. They're called Austin Pro Photo. They are one of the top companies when you search Austin photography. They're like one of the top ones that pop up. So their SEO is fantastic. And back in like 2015, 14, 15, somewhere around there, I had donated a video to a Christian school and met them. The video was played at a, uh, at a banquet, fundraising banquet. 
and got a standing ovation. And afterward, a bunch of people came up and talked to me because they made an announcement that I'm, I was the one who made the video, donated the video. And uh, uh, one of the group of people that came up and talked to me was Austin Profoto. And we exchanged contact information. And then since then, I mean, that was back in like 2014 or 15. And ever since then, every single time they get a call for video work, they contact me and offer me the opportunity to do, to do the job. So essentially I do video for all of their clients. So when they have a client that needs a photo and video work, they call me and I come do the, the, the video side. And I've gotten a lot of clients from that, done a lot of business from that. So this past year, I continued strengthening that relationship, continued working with them and got business out of it. And I try to send business their way as well. As a result, I do commercial photography um, too, but I don't specialize in it the way that they do. So when I have a client that needs commercial photography, I, I try to send it, send the photo jobs to Austin Pro Photo, and they send video jobs to me. It's been a great relationship. We've been doing that together for eight or nine years now, uh, but I just continued strengthening that relationship this past year and, and continued to see the fruits of that labor. So that was something I did as well. Let's jump into uh, some lessons I learned. This will be interesting. So the first is to not get complacent with clients and work you have. So I mentioned earlier at the beginning of the podcast how um, there were some tough moments this past year and that one of the tough things that happened was two of my biggest clients, really my two biggest clients, had changes in employment. And as a, as a re result of that, we didn't do as much business as we normally would. So that, that hurt my business. And I could have avoided some of that if I was not as complacent. Now, to be fair, you know, all this stuff that happened with my daughter and everything also threw a huge wrench into that. The more, and again, the market wasn't as strong this past year as it has been in previous years. But had I not been complacent in my work, it wouldn't have stung as much as it did. See, I got complacent because I had, I had like four or five different clients that were consistently giving me work throughout the year, every single year. And my two biggest for them to slow down on that dramatically because of changes that were happening within the company, that, I mean, that, that I lost a lot of income over that. And that's, that's money that I counted on for not only for the business, but for supporting my family. And it wouldn't have stung as much as it, as it would if, or it wouldn't have stung as much if I would have been going out and trying to find more clients like them so that if they, you know, weren't doing as much business with me for some reason for a brief period of time, I would have the other ones that would still be working with me, right? But I didn't do that. I wasn't out looking for other really big companies because I had these. And these were like keeping me busy throughout the year all year long. And so my, my, my editor and I were constantly shooting and editing content for these four or five clients and these two biggest ones in particular. And so we were so used to just doing work for them every year for the past five years or so that when those changes happened and we slowed down a, a, you know, and work for about six months, that really stung for my editor and I. And that could have been avoided if I had other companies like them that we were already doing other work for. And now that would mean, in order for me to do that, that would mean I'd have to grow the business. I'd probably have to bring in either another editor or some other shooters to help me take on more volume of work. But had I had more volume, it wouldn't have hurt when I lost some of the volume I did have. And that was my own fault. I got complacent. I got happy because I, I was happy and, and got comfortable because I, I was doing so much business with these same few clients all year, every year. And I just, Hey, I was good. Money was good. Life was good. Everything was good. And I was complacent, but I shouldn't have been, I should have been attacking and continually, continuously looking for people to replace them. Not that I had to replace them necessarily, but just 
just replacements to where like I could grow in volume to where if I lost some for a period of time, like I did, it would, it just, it would be okay. But I got complacent and that's not what happened. And that was on me. So that was a lesson I learned not to get complacent. So now I'm back to work with those two clients. Things are back to normal. We're doing a lot of business together. And, and that's why we ended the year in Q4 so strongly, but it could happen again at a moment's notice. So I've learned that lesson. So something I'm going to really work on and started working on this past year, but I'm going to really work on in 2024 is finding other clients like them so that I'm no longer being a complacent. I'm going to be a lot more aggressive this year so that if something like that was to happen again, I'll be okay. And so that was a lesson I learned is not to get complacent. Don't get comfortable. If things are going good, that's great. But continue to be aggressive because you never know when something can change. Um, the other thing I learned this year was that you can ask for full payment before a project is finished. Sometimes in my work, I'll do a project and I will require a 50%. This is what I traditionally do. I'll do work for client and in the contract, I require 50% deposit upfront, which includes the estimate 50% of the estimated expenses. And at the end of the project, they would, when, whenever final delivery has been made, you know, I deliver the final product and they uh, approve it, they would then make a final payment to me and then I would hand over their, you know, a downloadable copy of their video or photo files. That's traditionally for years what I've done. But the problem that I ran into is sometimes projects would drag on for months before we would ever get them finished. And it had nothing to do with like me or my editor. What it would be is I would, I would have a job, like this is a great example. I did a job for a medical client back in the summer. And then right after we shot the project, they decided to do a rebrand in their business, change the logos and colors and things, which is crazy. Like why do the rebrand right after we shoot a video? But anyway, because of that, we couldn't finish the project until they had finished going through all of their rebranding because we needed the fonts, the color schemes, and the logo to finish out the job. So it took them to like November or December to get us that. And we shot it in the summer. And so that's like six months of time, five or six months of time that we've had to wait to finish the job. However, I, I run into this a lot. Like this is something that I, I, has been a common theme in my, in my business where for some reason a job won't get finished for a while because the client is missing something or I'm waiting on them for something. And so it just drags on and on and on. And if you're, if you're not getting paid until the project's complete, it could be a long time before you get paid. So this past year, toward the beginning of the year, I worked with my attorney to change my contract wording, language, change the language in my contract where it now states you pay 50% up front to book the job and then you pay 50, the remaining 50% after we've shot the job before the editing begins. And that's been fantastic because I get paid ahead of time. And if they drag it out for six months, that's on them. I still get, I still have the money in my pocket. And if there's any added expenses or anything that gets added on top of what the quoted project was, then that's just an extra we'll bill for on top of the final payment. Well, for this particular metal, medical client that I mentioned the example of, I did do that for them. In the contract, we did charge them 50% up front and 50% after the shoot before the editing began. So we got paid within two weeks of the shoot. And so even though, like here it is, what, January 1, we still have not finished the project with them and we shot it back in like July, but yet I've already been paid because they paid me up, up front before editing started. And so I'm really thankful I made that change in my business because I haven't been waiting this whole time to get paid. 
So that's a change I made in 2023 that's really helped me. Um, so it's an improvement in my business, charging people 50% to book and then 50% before the editing begins. So it's basically 50% before the shoot, 50% before the edit is how I treat it. And and again, if there's any extra expenses or anything that get added on throughout the project, that's just an extra bill that gets sent in. And that's been huge. And that's really helped me speed up when I get paid for clients. And if jo- jobs drag on, it's you know not not my favorite thing that happens, but it, it doesn't kill me either. Um, another lesson I learned, this is actually kind of funny slash embarrassing, but I've had my Sony wireless transmitters and receivers for years since like, I think I switched from Sennheiser to Sony in like 2016, but I did not learn until this past year that when I was doing the auto scan, that I was only scanning channels within one group. So Sony's wireless mics, when you buy into a frequency range, let's say you buy into a frequency range of like the 400s to 500s block, they actually split that up into thirds. And those thirds are actually in groups. And when you're doing a clear scan or like a like an auto scan for scanning for a clear frequency, you're only scanning whatever group you're in. And so it's split, since the group is split up by thirds, if you, if you don't find a clear channel in the first group, you can go to the second group and check that group. And if you don't find one in that group, then you can go to the third group and check that group. That's how you access all, all the, the frequencies. Well, I, had, I, I hadn't quite understood that. Like I knew that Sony had different channels and groups, but I didn't understand that when you did the auto scan that it only checked the group you were in. And so since 2016, which is seven years, <laughs> I had been doing the auto scan in only one group which means for the last seven years when I would have an issue and I, I typically would find a free channel and I, I, I do a lot of channels of audio. Up to, I, we offer up to 10 channels of audio for our biggest projects. And most of the time I have no problem finding free channels. But there have been in some instances over the years where I, I just struggle to find a free or clean channel. And had I known this whole time that I was only doing the scan through one group I could have switched to groups two or three and probably found a clean channel. And I didn't know that because I'd only been scanning the one group this whole time. So I've only, in the last seven years, I've only been using one third of the frequencies that my wireless range can do, which is embarrassing. Now, I'm not a pro sound guy and I hire location sound recordists when we need someone to come in with the experience to not make stupid moves like that. But still, like sometimes I do my own audio and it's just really frustrating to know that for the past seven years, I've only been scanning one third of my channels. Now that I know that, I feel a lot better about finding free frequencies in the places that I go. Now, most of the time, I've always found a free frequency and multiple free frequencies. If I'm doing multiple channels of audio, it's never really been that much of an issue, but there have definitely been a few times where I I couldn't find a good frequency. And now I know (laughs) I was only looking at one third of the available frequencies on on my mics. So that's a lesson I learned. Kind of an embarrassing lesson, but now I know I've got a whole two thirds worth of frequencies to work with moving forward. Another uh, lesson I learned also has to do with wireless mics, but I was running into an issue, a couple issues this past year where I kept getting this like noise when people would talk or I would get these random dropouts, even though I had found what I thought was a free frequency. Come to find out, I did not know this, but come to find out there's a thing called occupancy sensors, which are essentially um, like if you walk into a room at at an office building and it has automatic lights, like that sensor that detects if there's motion, that's an occupancy sensor. Hence the name occupancy, like if it's 
there's someone occupying the space. So the occupancy sensors and things like motion detectors for lighting, they actually can affect your wireless audio frequencies. I had no clue. Like to me, that didn't make sense that they could affect each other, but for some weird reason they can. And so sometimes when I'd hear this like noise on top of people's voices when they talk, or if I just have a dropout, it actually wouldn't be a frequency issue. It was the occupancy sensors that were affecting my audio. And since I do a lot of commercial corporate work, I would run into these issues. You know, And I wouldn't say like all the time, but periodically, every once in a while, I'd run into it. And I didn't know that that's what I was running into. And so when I would run into it, I would have to switch over to my tentacle sync track ease and just run audio straight into a recorder, which is harder to monitor the audio of. You can through the app and headphones into your phone, but it's just not the same thing as true wireless audio uh, in terms of like monitoring. And so now that I know the occupancy sensors are the primary cause for that, I now know to look for it and to try to look for a fix. And Sony actually has a fix for it within their mic systems in their Gen 4 mics. If you buy their Gen 4 transmitters and, and receivers, they actually have an occupancy center, sensor setting that allows you to combat that issue and to work around the occupancy sensor. So if you're in a room, it's got motion lights, you're hearing that noise, and, and you think you have a free channel and you know it's probably the occupancy sensor, you could turn that setting on and over, like, work past it. I don't know. I personally have no clue how it works to, to move past that, but, um, I, I don't care. All I know is it works. So that's something, that's a lesson I learned is that occupancy sensors can affect your audio. And it's good to know that because, um, now moving forward, I know that there's a setting that can fix it for, for, for your wireless audio. And so I actually bought some gen four wireless mics this year from Sony because I had all Gen 3, so I bought some Gen 4s so I could turn that setting on to override that issue. Uh, and then lastly, I would say the biggest lesson I learned this year is what my company really is. I did a, a podcast recently that talked about the importance of like, like finding your lane and staying in your lane. And this kind of is on theme with that. I got to get a drink of water here real quick. For those of you watching on the podcast... Check out this new water bottle I got for Christmas. It's a Yeti bottle with Rustic River Media logo on it and this really cool blue color. My wife got me that. It's really cool. Anyway, so on that podcast, I talked about the importance of like learning your lane. And this is kind of on theme with that. So I already knew my lane, but I, I, I think this past year, it just really became apparent to me like who we are as a company. And... Who we are is, like, we do commercial work, corporate work, doc work. We do some reality TV, some short films, event coverage, and live streaming. And that's a lot of stuff. Like, what is that? Commercial, corporate, doc, reality TV, short films, event coverage, live streaming. It's like seven different areas that we work in, seven different types of things that we do. So that's a lot. We also do business photography, but that's not, like, a huge part of my business. just something I do uh, when companies want to do, like, a rebrand and they want to go all in, like, work with one company to do video and photo. But point is, is those are like the commercial corporate doc, reality TV, short films, event coverage, live streaming. Like that's what we do. And I, I think one thing that really became apparent is like, not only is that what we do, but the style in which we do it is a big part of our brand identity. Because when people work with me, they're not looking for Michael Bay. You know what I mean? They're not, they're not expecting Michael Bay to show up and do commercial work. I actually have a client who actually did hire Michael Bay for some commercial work back in the day. Um, 
But even today, that client who hires me for projects, they're not looking for Michael Bay when they hire me. When they hire me, what they're looking for is for someone who's really flexible, who's got a flexible business, who can um, show up like on a short notice and who can turn projects around quickly and still do a good job. And they're, they're looking for me, they're looking to spend some money, right? But they're also not looking to drop half a million dollars either. So learning like who I am as a company, like who, who Rustic River Media is as a company. And I, and I say who I am because I obviously I'm like the soul of Rustic River Media, but learning who Rustic River Media is as a company was really important this year um, in helping me to really understand like who our market is and what types of projects we do. Like this is one of the reasons why I don't, why I don't like own an Alexa or a Red V Raptor, for example, because my projects don't need it. Like if you're, if I'm being honest, what my projects need is they need a great script, great project planning. They need for, they need for me and my crew to be flexible and they need for us to be able to take the project once it's been shot and turn it around quickly. Like that's what my clients need. And we spend a lot of money on projects. We did a project this past year where we, or last year where we dropped like, I think in 2022, this is just an example, but we did a project in 2022 where we dropped like 12 or $13,000 just on renting on the location rental for a one day shoot. And that's just for renting the location. That had nothing to do with all the executives like that we flew in and all the money we spent to fly them in and all the money we spent on crew and all the money we spent on, on uh, set design and props and all this stuff. Like we put a lot of money into this project and as an, for just for an example. And so it was a big budget project, but the client still needed that turnaround very fast and they needed me and my crew to be flexible and they needed us to be able to handle everything from location scouting to project planning to lining everything out, showing up, shooting it, and then getting it out within like one to two weeks. And, and that's a lot to ask, but that's what my clients are looking for. So it's important to understand that because as a result, what I don't need is I don't need to be running an Alexa 35. I don't need the craziest high dynamic range. What I need is great lighting equipment, great audio equipment. I need cameras I can rely on. I need time code. And I need a, I need a great crew that's fun to work with, that can be on time, that can dress well, and that can be punctual and, and speak well in front of my customers and so that we can show up, shoot the project, give it to my editor and get it out within one to two weeks. Like that's what my customers expect from me and that's who we are as a business. And I think learning that has been really helpful for me because used to, I would spend a lot of time worrying about things like, like, like color grading and stuff like that. And color is important. Like, don't get me wrong. I'm not trying to like say it's not, but I spend way more time now on project planning and script writing than anything else because that's what my clients really expect. Like that's what they want more than anything is do we have a great script? Do we have a really good message? Are we getting the message across to the right people in the right way? Who's going to say the message? How are they going to say the message? And where are we going to say the message at? Like that's what my clients care about more than anything. And then once we figure all that out, and we show up to shoot it, we'll shoot it in anywhere from like one to five days, depending on, on the scope of the project. And then we got to turn it around quickly. And so I can't spend hours and hours and hours 
color grading individual shots. Like so, what I do instead is we'll we'll focus a lot more on on finding a great location, figuring out what the props and set design is going to look like, the colors of the clothing that people are going to wear. So we put a lot of our time and energy into pre-production, and then the day of we spend a lot of time on lighting, so that most of our color work's already done through the lighting, so that. When we get home, our audit, we want great color. We want great lighting, which creates great color, and we want great sound so that when we get home, we can do light touch-ups to the color. We can do light touch-ups to EQing the sound, and we can cut the projects together very quickly and get them out the door as fast as possible. Like that's what my clients are looking for. So in saying that, I just need great reliable equipment. I need great lights, great audio equipment, and I need to spend a ton of time in pre-production because that's where most of the value comes to my client is the pre-production and the ability to get the project out the door quickly after it's being shot. And so that that's what I learned about my business this past year is like accepting that. Like that's that's what I've been doing for the last several years, but I never really accepted that that was my brand identity until this past year. So, so we work in these different environments. We, we do everything from like live streaming to commercial work or corporate work or whatever. But the majority of our work is going to be scripted content that is sh- shot and turned around really quickly. And we have to be adaptable and we have to be, uh, be willing to put more time in pre-production than in, it, than in anything else. And so, yeah, I'd love to spend a ton of time grading images and posts or spend a ton of time... Um, just really diving deep into the way we mix our sound and stuff like that. But in all honesty, that's not what my clients want. What they want is for us to put more time in pre-production and then show up, shoot it, get it out the door and accepting like, like, like learning and accepting that that's what my clients want and need actually brought some relief to me this past year because it made me feel like I don't have to stress over certain some of those things. Like I can I can let go of having to have the perfect color grade. I can let go of having to have the perfect sound. Like I want it to sound great and I use incredible audio equipment, but I, if I shoot it well in the field, if I've got great lighting and great sound on location, then I don't have to spend as much time in post. I can just get to post. We can do light touch-ups on color, light touch-ups on the sound and just kind of sweeten it up. Um, mix in fully when it's needed and then get it out the door really quick. And like once I accepted that, it kind of took some stress off of me because it made me realize what's more important to my clients and I can put more emphasis on that. And what is more important to my clients is having a great plan and spending a lot of time in the project planning phase and the script writing phase. So that's something I, I really learned this past year that I think was a good lesson for me because it helped me really to understand who we are as a company and how we can best serve our customers. Let's talk about improvements in work. Improvements in my work this past year start with switching completely over to DaVinci Resolve and the Black Magic Cloud. So I switched to DaVinci Resolve at the very beginning of the year. I've been color grading in Resolve for a very long time, since 2014, but it's been challenging to do because I've had to round trip to Premiere and back. But in January, I switched to Resolve because I was having so many issues with Adobe Premiere and, 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 and After Effects just being a pain in the butt, crashing all the time even though I've got a new system. So I switched completely over to Resolve, got my editor to switch over to Resolve with me. And uh, we worked in Resolve 100% this year, this past year. And and we used the Blackmagic Cloud so that we could have cloud-based project files where I could log in and check his work anytime I wanted and make real-time changes on the cloud project file and him see the updates in real time. Like that was huge. So he could be working on a project in terms of like cutting it together, um, 
finding the music, starting to work on things like Foley and whatnot, and then I can go in and do that light touch-ups to color and sound that we talked about and make some final changes and then export the project and get it to my client. So Resolve has been great this past year. It's really helped us out. The program doesn't crash near as much as Premiere did, and it's it's really simple to use. Like uh, It does things that, to me, make more sense than Premiere. Premiere just the way it did things I never really liked. I feel like Resolve just makes more sense from a user experience perspective and everything's under one roof. You've got all your uh, editing so- uh, software right there in Fusion, right in the program. You've got Fairlight Audio, so you don't have to go to something like Audition. It's right there in the program. You've got um, the cut page and the edit page. Everything is right there under one roof, so you just go in and cut it, edit it, do the graphics, do the color, do the sound, export it. And I, I love that, and I love the cloud-based workflow so my, my editor and I can can bounce back and forth and collaborate on a project remotely. That's been a great change. The second change is, uh, or improvement to my work this year, has been using uh, transcriptions to aid in editing interview dialogue. So I've been really incorporating, you know, this past year with AI and stuff, like Resolve got this transcription software that'll basically allows, you know, you to to take interview audio and tra- or, or any dialogue, any audio really, and transcribe it into text and you can actually edit from the text or export the text. Premiere now has that as well, so does other programs. But I've incorporated that in my workflow this year where a lot of times if I'm working with a, like a corporate client, and let's say we've shot an unscripted interview. We, you know, we're obviously directing it, but if it's not actually scripted, sometimes I want the the, the corporate client or commercial client to have a say in the interview dialogue, so that we're, there's not so much back and forth. Like us pick what we think sounds best, but then come back to us and say, "Well, didn't they say this one line about this one thing?" We can cut all that out by exporting a transcription directly from Resolve, sending it to the client. They can kind of go through, highlight the stuff that they really like, that they want us to try to use, and then we can edit off that text. And so working with transcriptions with clients has been a huge change to our workflow this past year and has helped our clients have more say in some of the changes that are happening in post-production, which sounds scary in theory because a lot of times you don't want your clients to be super involved in the editing process. But I actually, in this case, don't mind it because it cuts a lot of the guesswork out. A client can look at a transcription that we send them and they can highlight the key points out of the interview dialogue that they really want us to make sure we use. And now we know that we're using the material that they want us to use. We're not making an educated guess. So that's been a really great change. Um, we've also dramatically sped up turnaround times. I said that like part of the identity that I learned this past year is like who we are as a business, like our, our customers expect things to be turned around quickly. And we are, man, we're turning around projects fast. This past year, we started turning around fully shot projects. I'm talking like really big projects anywhere from one to three weeks. In some cases, 24 to 48 hours. Now, I don't typically like to do that, but like some event work and stuff we shot, we were turning stuff around within 24 hours and my clients' heads were just blown by that. They were so floored to get files turned around so quickly. And we were still doing a good job because here's the thing, right? We're spending cut because we're spending so much time in pre-production and we're spending so much time on the way that we uh, light stuff, the way the sound is and everything else, and we have a really good plan going in, it makes editing a lot easier because the color is done essentially through the lighting and the audio already sounds good from the way we capture it in the field. So so we can take the project, cut it up real fast. We don't have to do but light touch-ups to the color, light touch-ups to the, to the audio, and we cut things together with music that we have. We have like music we've like 
append that we really like. So we have we pull from from music we've already kind of sorted through over the years, and we can cut stuff up and turn it around fast. Like I said, typically one to three weeks, sometimes 24 to 48 hours. And my clients have been loving that, and they've been sending more and more work our way because of it. And so that's been really great. And some of these projects, like these are huge. Like the one the one project I talked about where we spent like twelve or $13,000 just to rent a space for a day, like that was a really bit when in terms of like the total cost for the entire project it was really high. And we turned those files out, I think in one or two weeks. It was amazing. So I love, love, love that. Um, another improvement to my work this year was I started using Lightroom's new masking tools for photo editing. So Lightroom's got some great uh, AI-based or I don't know if it's technically AI based. I, photography is not my biggest thing. Like video is my main thing, but I don't, whatever you want to call it, Lightroom has got some newer software that allows them to auto detect people or subjects in, uh, in a photograph as well as objects. And so you can highlight people or objects or things and it's real. it can really smartly mask stuff out. It's actually really good and really accurate. And I've been using that a lot in my photo editing this year. And it's allowed me to, to improve my photography editing because I can quickly highlight a subject through this process in Lightroom, like the subject detector, whatever, and quickly make changes to like maybe brightening their face or changing the, the skin tone or whatever. And I can do it really, really fast without affecting the rest of the image. Used to, to mask that stuff out would take a long time. But now with, and I guess it is AI, whatever you want to call it, it, it can do it automatically and it's very accurate and works very, very well. And that's helped me to improve my photography editing this year. I also worked a lot on improving my handheld shooting. I've talked about this in the past where like in the past several years where I've, I've done things like incorporated to easy rig into my, a lot of my handheld shooting and um, started doing different techniques and things to help me improve my handheld shooting. But I, I worked a lot this year on improving it even more. And I'll, I'll talk a little bit about gear in a bit, but you know, part of it was by making my camera heavier. Part of it was by like shooting with wider focal lengths and uh, improving on my breathing techniques and stuff. But I spent a lot of time really trying to improve my handheld shooting this year, um, having more sway in my shots and allowing for that through like moving my body left to right. All these things that I did that helped me improve my handheld shooting, which I think has been great and allowed me to shoot a lot more handheld with my FX6 this year, which again, doesn't have something like IBIS or and I don't use image stabilized lenses or anything like that when I shoot handheld. So being able to improve my handheld shooting technique has been great. I also got better with the sticks when it comes to flying my drone. So my Mavic 3 Cine, um, uh, you know, I've, I've been flying drones for a long time. And my Mavic 3 Cine, I really enjoy it, especially because it comes with this amazing remote. I don't remember the RC Pro or whatever they call it. I really like it. And I've had this drone for a few years now, ever since it got released, whenever that was. Um, and, and the drone's incredible. But this past year, I, I really worked on my ability to control the drone manually with the sticks and like be able to do, I don't, I don't want to say dangerous, but like do um, get shots that normally I'd be kind of nervous to get, but this past year, no problem, man. I, I've just really gotten a lot better at the sticks when it comes to flying a drone, and it's just helped me to get more dynamic shots this year, which has been great. Um, I also learned a lot about audio editing. So I said that I don't spend a ton, a ton, a ton of time in audio, unless the project calls for it. Like if I'm doing a short film project, I'll spend a lot of time on audio and I'll incorporate a ton of Foley, especially if it's a passion project, like the collaboration project I'm doing with that fly shop I talked about at the beginning of the podcast. So I'm going to spend an absolute ton of time on audio for that. But for a lot of my projects, I just need really great sounding dialogue. And how I get most of that accomplished is by using incredible mics. Sankin Cause 11Ds and um, 
like Lobs, for example, or my Sennheiser MKH 8060, 8050, or 8040 gun mics. I mean, those are like $1,500, $2,000 mics. They're amazing. So a lot of what I do to get great sounding audio is just by the way I capture it and the mics I use. But I wanted to improve my ability to edit audio. And there's a whole world that goes in that. I mean, people go to school, get degrees in working with audio and post. And I didn't. So what I did this past year, beyond a lot of research and stuff, is I started taking my sound recordist out to get coffee and I would pick his brain about different things like how to manually compress stuff and how to um, how to create like different different ways to 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 monitor and get a target loudness and just stuff like that and and really working on like learning how to better EQ stuff and just working on ways to betterly, better manually edit my audio. And I have guys that will hire for certain projects to edit our audio, but a lot of our stuff, like I said, we're getting it out the door very, very fast. And I want to be able to just do light touch-ups to already good, cap, like well-captured audio where we're just lightly touching it up in post. But I wanted to make sure those touch-ups um, were done well. And so I've been spending a lot of time this past year working with location sound recordists that I hire for, for, for work sometimes. And I'll, um, I'll pick their brain, take them out to coffee, pick their brain. I'll bring my computer and when we'll walk through different things, like how to use attack, how to use release, different things like that. So I can get better at manipulating sound and post so I can be more efficient at how we edit our audio to make it sound better. So that's something I've done this past year. Audio is a whole nother world, man. And I, I'm going to be spending a lot of time in the next several years continuing to try to improve my sound and my sound editing. And I want to get really good at it. I want to get a lot faster at it. But there's a lot that goes into it. And so like in, in, in working like with me, I, I didn't go to school for it. So working with people who did go to school for it and picking their brain and learning from them has been really useful. And that's something I did a lot this past year. I also, speaking of audio, I got better at hiding lav mics. So I've always been really big on hiding lobs. If you follow filming with Josh, you've probably heard me say that a bunch. This past year, I've gotten even better at it. And how I got better at it was I got better at eliminating clothing rustling. Clothing rustling is awful. And when you hide lobs, that's like the biggest thing you're going to face is making sure you don't have clothing rustling noises in your in your sound. So this past year, I, I picked up Bubble Bee and that's not Bumblebee, it's Bubblebee Lav Concealers and started learning how to incorporate them into my work. And I'm going to make a whole video on how I hide lobs um, here within the next month. But before I do that, I'll just mention in this podcast that the Bumblebee Lav Concealers and learning how to use them has really helped me learn different ways to hide lobs and eliminate clothing rustling in the process so that I can get cleaner files to my editor that sound great out of the box using mics like the cause 11ds one thing i like about them is the frequencies that they tend to lean toward make them a brighter mic so they sound really well when hidden under clothes not as muffled and so by using mics that already sound good under clothing and then incorporating that with these lav concealers that do a great job of protecting uh, the mic from clothing rustling noise it, it's just gone, gone a long way in helping me hand hand over cleaner files to my editor now i boom most of the time i'm a big proponent of booming booming audio which is why i've got cardioid super cardioid and different types of gun mics for different situations but 
I can't always boom everything. And so learning how to better hide my lav mics in a way that gives me cleaner results with less, less clothing rustling noise, that's been something I really focused on getting better at this year and have gotten pretty good at it. And so that's been a big improvement this year. And again, I'm going to do a video that shows some of my techniques um, here in the next month or so. I also gave my camera operators more creative control. I, I learned to let go of some of my creative control this year, gave my operators more opportunity to be creative and to use their own ideas on shots and kind of gave them more free reign. Um, a good example is Joey Chapman. He's a friend of mine. He, he shoots for me. Um, he specifically asked for more creative freedom on projects because he wanted me to, to give him that trust. So this year I gave him that opportunity. I, I brought him out for projects where I would tell him the shots we needed, give him a shot list, and then I'd cut him loose. And I'd say, how, how you get those shots is up to you. And I give him some thoughts on like kind of the style and feel. Maybe it's a little more gritty of a project and I want a little more handheld, or maybe it's more corporate and I want it more on sticks. I'll give him some, some of those guidelines. But outside of that, I left it up to him and gave him a lot of creative freedom and I didn't live over his shoulder as much. And I did that for Amanda Campbell, who's another shooter I hire, uh, as well as several other people. And that's, I think that's helped a lot because they have their own ideas and their own their own creative thoughts that I'm I, that are different than mine. And they've given me some really cool results that have allowed me to incorporate different shots than I normally would get. And so that's been really nice by learning to let go and not be so controlling and not micromanage as much and give them an opportunity to show me what their strengths are. Uh, and I've done the same thing. This is the last thing I'll say improvement in my work this past year um, is I gave my editor more creative control. I stopped trying to micromanage um, this year and gave him a lot more creative freedom. I, you know, I give him a project and tell him what we're looking for. And sometimes it's completely scripted, but for stuff that wasn't completely scripted, I'd say, you know, like, like I just shot like these, I think we did five gala videos in November that we shot for Stephen F. Austin State University. We shot 17 interviews in three and a half days and then spent the rest of the five days shooting B-roll. And then I already shot a bunch of B-roll there on campus last year for Stephen F. Austin and so for a different project we did. And uh, so we have a bunch of B-roll left over that hit the cutting room floor that we never used. So we're going to incorporate that plus the new B-roll we shot and we're going to take those 17 interviews and we're going to cut them into five videos to help raise funds at a gala that's happening uh, this month. And I basically gave the interviews, this is just an example, but I gave the interviews to my editor and I said, here's the goal, here's the timing, like how long they have to be, and here's the B-roll. And I gave them like an idea of kind of what we're looking for, but then that was it. I said, the rest is up to you. And I gave him a lot of creative freedom. And this is just one example of many, but I'm trying to just really rely on his judgment and his ideas and his creativity because he's a great editor. And in a lot of ways, he's better than me. And I want him to be able to come to me with his own ideas and his own concepts and show me what he came up with. And sometimes I'll have him change things. And, and, and a lot of times I don't. He'll come up with things I never would have thought of. And he's really done a fantastic job of showing me why you should trust other people. And so just letting go and not micromanaging as much with my camera operators and my editor has been an improvement this past year. And that's part of the reason why I've been able to improve my turnaround times. All right, so now we're to everybody's favorite part of the podcast. I saved it for last, equipment. And this is the last part of the podcast. I just want to touch on some of the bigger gear items I bought this year. Of course, I bought some small things here or there, but these are kind of the bigger things I bought. I'll start with 
uh, the Sony FX3. I had an A7S3, I got rid of it and uh, bought a second A1. And so I've been running an FX6 and two A1s. That's how I ended 2022. Uh, in 2023, I decided I wanted to bring another camera uh, into the business that was more dedicated toward video than the A1s. And so I brought in the FX3. And that has been a great purchase. I love the FX3, especially now that it has the firmware updates that give it things like internal internal LUTs, um, the uh, Cine EI mode, which is what I run on the FX6. So it, it runs in Cine EI just like my FX6 does, which I really like. So the, the, the workflow is very pretty much the same. Um, and it has you know other things like uh, focus breathing compensation, anamorphic de-squeeze for certain ratios and stuff like that. But the biggest thing the FX3 has is timecode. I love that. Of course, I can run tentacle sync trackies into my A1s and get timecode that way. And I do do that. But I like having a legit timecode with a string of numbers already baked into the camera. So when you get to post, there's no extra step. And so you can actually see the numbers in the field to like have that verification that everything is synced up the way it's supposed to be. So the FX3 can do timecode through the HDMI, or excuse me, the uh, USB micro or mini, whatever it is, port. And uh, Tentacle Sync came out with a cable this past year that plugs into their track ease and into that micro port. And it's just a small little tiny cable. Sony has their own proprietary cable, but I hate it. The one that, that Tentacle Sync came out with is amazing. It's just a, it's just basically a, a a time code to a USB micro or mini cable. And um, it's worked really, really well. And it's allowed me to use my trackies to generate a string of numbers into the FX3, just like I would do with normal time code on my FX6. So that's been the biggest reason I bought it. So having that on the FX3, as well as LUTs on the, when I'm, when I'm not using an external monitor and I'm just using it on like a gimbal, having LUTs a custom LUTs on the screen has been really nice. Um, that's something I would normally have with the FX6, so I have it on the three now. Um, the the tally lights and the, uh, the the fans, so I don't have to worry about overheating and stuff, uh, as well as um, the more dedicated buttons like focus peaking buttons, things like that. All that plus an EI makes it a better B cam for the FX6 than the A1. So the A1s are great. I have two of them. I use them a ton for photo work or anything where I'm doing photo and video, but having a dedicated video B cam has been really nice. And I built it out with a, with a rig. I'm actually using it to film this podcast right now. Um, I've got a, a small HD, uh, see, I've got a Cine 5 on my FX6. So my FX3 would have the ND5. So I have an ND5 on my FX3 um, and I power the, the FX3 and the monitor off of a V-mount battery on the back. I use the small rig V-mount plate V-mount to Arca Swiss plate to hold it all together. Um, and I use an aftermarket top handle and the whole thing, the whole system. And the, I use this, a wooden camera part that allows me to bolt a tentacle sink to the side of the, um, uh, of the, uh, of the cage and the whole thing. Just, I don't know. It's just really great. It's small, lightweight, compact, lasts for hours. And it's just a great B cam for the FX6. So the FX3 is probably the, the biggest, piece of equipment I bought this year in terms of like just value it brought to the business. The second was the 16 to 35 2.8 G Master version two. I had version one, it was a good lens, but version two is smaller, lighter, has an external aperture ring, has prettier lens flares, is a little sharper, um, focuses faster. And mo most importantly to me, the difference from 16 to 35, because it's an externally zooming lens, it doesn't zoom that much. Like it doesn't zoom out that much physically. So when you balance it on a gimbal, if you, let's just say you balance it at like 24 millimeters, like right in the middle. If you go to 16 or back 
to 35, it doesn't really affect the gimbal balancing at all. So that's been really nice. It's a great lens for running on a gimbal. So I love that change going from the, the version one to version two, G Master 163528. I also bought a Leoa 12 mm T290 zero distortion Cine lens. The Cine lens like the Cine portion of that is important because there's two versions. There's a Cine and a non-Cine. The non-Cine is more of a photo lens. The Cine version is bigger, is in a metal body, has an external aperture ring uh, that is geared, and it can hold a standard matte box, 114 millimeter matte box with this little clamp it comes with on the outside of the lens. And that's really important because this lens in combination with these new matte boxes I'm gonna talk about in a second, allows me to run a 12 millimeter wide field of view on a full frame camera, which is crazy wide, with very little vignetting, very little distortion, hence the name 0D, uh, fast aperture T29, which is basically f2.8 in a sense, and it it can take a matte box, so you can put filters on the end of it. Most really wide lenses cannot have filters on the front, but this one can. So with a clamp-on style matte box, I can add an, N an ND, a straight ND to the front of this lens. And that has been amazing. So for uh, my architectural or home building clients where we're doing marketing content and I'm trying to shoot like inside of these different buildings or homes or like we, I shot a hospital this past year that right after it got built the like a day before it opened. And I use this lens on my FX3 or, or on my A1s and to get 12 millimeter field of view with hardly any distortion and to have you know, very little vignetting, so it's a nice, clean lens, and it's very sharp, deep depth of field, what you want for that kind of stuff, and it's crazy wide. And to have all that on a lens that you can also add and and a filter to the front of has been amazing. And so I've used that a lot this past year for gimbal work and stuff when shooting architectural or home building type projects for clients. Um, and then on top of that, I bought I had two bright tangerine matte boxes. I replaced them this year with uh, wooden camera Zipbox Pros. I bought two of them. I love them. They're lighter and smaller than the bright tangerines. And I like that because it allows me to fit them on, like with the Cabot camera fully rigged with the matte box, they fit inside the camera bags better. So I can bring two fully rigged cameras ready to go with matte boxes on both. And so I like those matte boxes. I, I, think, the, I think the bright tangerines are slightly better built than the wooden cameras. However, the wooden cameras, again, they're smaller, they're lighter. And if you buy the uh, round stage filter adapter for the to put on that mounts to the back of them, you, they can take up to four filters, three up front and then the one round filter in the back. So it's a four stage. These are, with the add-on piece, you can make them into four stage matte boxes, which is really cool. So you could have something like uh, a circular polarizer in the back and then have like a, a straight ND in the front. Um, uh, and then you could have like a, or uh, uh, like a, a mist filter in front of that or and then a gradient in front of that. I mean, you do whatever you want. I mean, there's all kinds of combinations you can do, but the point is really cool. They're four-stage lightweight matte boxes. And without that round filter stage, if you just use the front stage, like the front three, you could put a clear filter and clamp it on, I mean, a, a solid ND filter and clamp it onto that 12-millimeter lens and have a 12-millimeter lens with a clamp-on matte box and no vignetting at all, which is amazing. So it's been a great combination to not only have a smaller matte box uh, for both my cameras, but to be able to use that 12-millimeter lens with filters. That's been a really nice purchase. I also sw switched over primarily to Gen 4 Sony UWP mics. Now, I still have some Gen 3s. Uh, they're still great. There's nothing wrong with the Gen, for Gen 3s. I just picked up some Gen 4s this year so that I could have those occupancy sensor settings I talked about earlier. So when working in commercial corporate buildings, I have automatic lights, which a lot of them do now. Um, 
I can work around the occupancy sensors and not have dropouts. So the Gen 4 wireless transmitters and receivers that includes handheld mics, plug-on transmitters, and body pack transmitters are uh, some new purchases I made this year or this past year. Also picked up some more Sankin Cos 11D. So, so I mentioned earlier, I love the Sankin Cos 11D lav mic. Um, they're one of the industry standard lavs. If you don't know much about lavs, um, you know, when you buy a, a body pack transmitter and it comes with a stock lav, usually the stock lav is not that mm -hmm. great. If, and the quickest way you can improve the quality of your wireless audio is to improve your, your actual lapel. And so the three kind of industry standard lapel mics at the highest end are going to be the Sankin Cos uh, 11D, the DPA 4060 series, and the DPA 6060 series. Those are kind of like the three uh, most commonly used high-end lapels. Now, you you have some others, like the Countryman B6 is used a lot when you need to hide a teeny tiny little mic, but they don't sound as good typically, so they're really only used in specialty applications when you're just trying to really hide something in like someone's hair, for example. Um, this, the Countryman B3s are uh, some lavs I want to buy this year. They're not as nearly as good as the DPAs or the Sankins, but they're decent mics and they're pretty water resistant, so they're great for like dock work and they're pretty cheap. They're only like 200 bucks each or 190 bucks. so if something happens to them, it's not the end of the world. Um, so that, that, you know, and the Tram TR50 is another kind of old school but popular lav, but at the highest end, when you when you just need like really great sounding lobs, the DPA 4060, 6060, and the Sankin Cos 11Ds are kind of like the three most common. So I I already had a couple in black Cos 11Ds. Uh, I like the Cos 11 more than the DPAs because they're a little tougher and they're a little less expensive. They're like 380 bucks. I think the DPAs range from like 500 to 600 dollars, and that's without getting the correct micro dot adapter, which you have to get the micro dot adapter for your particular uh, wireless system. So you're going to really be in like 600 for the 40, $600 for like the full setup for like the 40, 60 series or like $700 for the 60, 60 series. And that's just for like one single lapel. Whereas the Sankin Gaz 11Ds, which are one of the top three most popular in the world, they're $380, so like half the price, and they're a little bit tougher. So I like them. They're also a little brighter, which is great for hiding under clothing, which I typically hide, hide my likes, my mics under clothes. So I like the Cos 11Ds. I already had two in black in this past year, and I've had my two in black for like six or seven years. They've lasted that long. They still sound great. So I bought this year, or this past year, two more in white and two more in beige. The white allows me to hide them easier on white clothing or under white clothing, like a white button-up shirt where the black might be seen, the black wire. And the beige is great for hiding on lighter skin tones if you have to actually hide the mic on someone where it's visible on skin. So if I'm hiding it on someone who's lighter in skin color, I can use the beige color ones and I can use the darker black ones if I'm hiding on someone's skin tones who's got darker color skin tones. So um, those are uh, some some new uh, purchases I made by, by getting some extra Cos 11Ds plus just having extra helps. I've got six body pack transmitters, so now I've got six Cos 11Ds to go on all six so I can mic up to six people uh, with lobs at once and uh, and have the same sound out of all of them. I also picked up, speaking of audio, I picked up a Rycote WS1 modular windshield kit. Essentially, it's just a blimp that fits my Sennheiser MKH 8060 uh, shotgun mic with the MZF low cut filter switch. I love the 8060 shotgun mic. I've got two of them. They're great. One of them I pretty much keep on uh, my FX6 as an on-camera mic and the other I use for booming. I could boom both of them as well uh, if I was double booming, but I have not ever bought a blimp for my 
8060 gun mic and then finally bought one this past year. And I went with the specifically with the Rycote one that was made and designed for that particular mic so that I had a blimp that was like custom made for, for my mic and, and for the size of mic I have. And uh, Rycote makes fantastic blimps. And it's modular, meaning I can make it bigger or smaller and make it work for other mics if I wanted to down the road. But I pretty much always run the 8060 when running a, a mic on a boom outside, which is where you'd want to blimp anyway. So I really only need them for the 8060, and I've got two of them, so I can run either one in my blimp. And it's been amazing. I used it, um, first project I used it on, we recorded a lot of wireless uh, boom audio. I had a, a guy, a um, uh, camera operator who would put his camera down and he'd hold my boom for me. And ha we had a plug on transmitter on it and we use it to capture wireless, uh, interviews on the fly for a uh, shotgun shooting match. It was like the world championship of shock of shotgun shooting that happened down in San Antonio. We were shooting a TV show and, uh, we did wireless booming and, uh, with that blimp in a really windy kind of nasty stormy conditions. And it did great. The audio sounds fantastic from it. So really cool blimp, really cool addition. I've been wanting to get that for a while. They're expensive. They're like six or $700, but I knew it would make all the difference in the world when booming outdoors. So pick that up. That's been a nice purchase. I also started switching over to the Aperture Light Dome 3 and Light Dome Mini 3s. I had Light Dome 2s and Light Dome Mini 2s as well as the Light Dome 150. The Light Dome 150 is my favorite, but it's not always feasible to use in every situation because it's gigantic. So I use the Light Dome 2 and Light Dome Mini 2 when I'm in more confined places. Um, but now they have the Light Dome 3 and Light Dome Mini 3, and I started switching over to those this past year. I like them better because they fold up flat. It makes them easier to transport and to carry in my, in my truck. So that's been a nice addition. Just makes flying with them easier, so it's just easier to fly with Light Domes or, again, care, stack them on top of each other, carry them in the truck, that kind of thing. I've also switched over to Angel Bird 1TB CF Express Type A, car, a cards. I had 20 Sony <laughs> 160-gigabyte CF Express Type A cards. And the reason I had 20 is I had a certain amount for each of my four cameras. I had a few for my FX6, a few for my FX3, a few for my A1, and a few for my other A1. And uh, I keep them all together. And that's a lot of cards. And it costs a lot of money. It costs like $8,000 or something like that to have 20 of those. Well, the Angelbird one terabyte CF Express Type A cards set me back four grand, right? And it got me eight terabytes worth. So to put this in perspective, the 860 gigabyte, or excuse me, the 20 160 gigabyte CF Express Type A Sony Tough Cards that cost me $8,000 was like three point something terabytes worth of memory card space. And I paid like eight grand to have that. Well, when Angelbird came out with their one terabyte cards, they were way cheaper. And I sold all my Sonys for a total of $4,000. So I sold my CF Express Type A cards for the exact amount, all 20 of them, for the exact amount it cost me to switch the Angel Bird. So I wasn't out of money, any pocket to make the switch. But I went from 20 160 cards, which was like three point something terabytes worth of media, to eight one terabyte cards, only eight. And that was the equivalent of eight terabytes of media. So the difference in storage space versus cost on eight cards versus 20 cards is amazing. Eight terabytes for four grand on eight cards versus like three point something terabytes for eight grand on 20 cards. Big change. So all of my cameras now have two CF Express Type A cards in them. Um, so that's why I got eight of them. So I've got two in my FX6, two in my FX3, two in my first A1, and two in my second A1. So all my cameras have duplicate one terabyte cards in them, which is amazing. I never have to change cards um, during a day. I can basically 
uh, do relay recording where I shoot everything to one card and if it fills up, it goes into the second card, giving me two terabytes of storage space. Or I can do duplicate recording or, or uh, simultaneous recording where I'm just shooting onto both cards at the same time and I get a total of one terabyte plus like a one terabyte backup, which is really great. So these quick trips I'm talking about that I do on these flights where I fly out for construction company, shoot for uh, uh, shoot for the day and then fly back the next day. I typically don't have time to dump my footage because I'm flying up, shooting, going to bed, getting up, getting to the airport, and leaving, and I'm not even bringing a laptop with me. So I shoot simultaneously to the A, a card and the B card. And when I come home, I, I've got on the flight back, I've got two cards. I basically already have my backup because I'm not going to shoot more than one terabytes during one day. So my on any specific camera. So my eight. My, my camera, when I fly back, I can just split the cards up, put like leave one in the camera, put the other in my pocket. So they're in two different locations. And if I ever lost one, I have an automatic backup. And because they're one terabyte in size, I can afford to do that. Another example of how I use them is at the, uh, the these gala fundraising, fundraising videos I did in November for the college. I would shoot all the interviews on the A cards on my A and B cam. And then I did all the B roll on the on card slot B so I could split them up every day. Uh, and because they're one terabyte in size, I can afford to do that. So having two one terabyte cards in each of my cameras for either relay recording or simultaneous recording has been huge. And when you combine that on my FX6 with this next product I bought, which is I bought the wooden camera V-mount plate for my FX6. I talked about this in a video I did last week, which broke down my FX6 rig, but I added V-mounts to my FX6 to help me add weight and size and balance for handheld shooting to improve my handheld shooting technique, but it also allowed me to double the battery life of my FX6. So my FX6 already has a BPU-90 battery, but now I add either a 50-watt or a 99-watt small rig V-mount battery to the back of it, I either increase the battery life by 50% or 100%. So I have very long battery life on my FX6, like seven or eight hours, and that's powering the camera and a small HD 75 monitor at the same time. So I get great battery life out of my FX6. Shoot all day without really having to change batteries for the most part. And when you combine that with the two one terabyte cards, I can shoot for a very, very, very long period of time without ever having changed batteries or ever having changed cards. And that's been a great change. For dock shooting, it's been amazing. Same thing with event coverage. I can go shoot an event all day long, probably not have to change batteries and probably for sure won't have to change cards. Pretty amazing. And lastly, I added another tentacle sync trackie. Um, I, I started incorporating tentacle sync trackies to my workflow at the very end of last year. And I bought another one this year. I plan to buy a couple more. The trackies are amazing 32-bit flow audio recorders that run on time code, just like the tentacle syncs do. And the trackies now can also double as a time code generator thanks to a recent firmware update. So you can use them as either a time code generator or an audio 32-bit flow audio recorder. And um, so adding a second one this year has been a great addition because what they allow me to do essentially is if I am in a scenario where I can't run my wireless audio for some reason, whether it's RF issues like at a hospital or something like that, I can just run the, the tentacle sync track ease and hard basically get like a hard copy on someone without having to worry about transmitting a wireless signal. So that's been really great and has bailed me out of some situations. Although now that I have that lesson learned that I've only been scanning one third of my channels, maybe I won't need them as much. <laughs> but either way, that's uh, the biggest items. I bought some other things this past year, but those are like the big things that really stick out to me. Um, but anyway, that's really uh, it for this podcast. That's kind of wrapping up 2023 in a nutshell. I told you this is going to be a long podcast. I knew it would be. If you listen this long or if you've watched this long, you either have no life or you're driving somewhere and just needed to kill time. But <laughs> I appreciate you listening in. If you like what I talked about, um, please subscribe to the podcast and rate it. 
And if you have any questions or comments, comment either on the YouTube video if you're watching this on YouTube or comment uh, on whatever uh, podcast platform you're on or go to the Filming with Josh Facebook group and ask to join the group and comment there. And let me know your comments, thoughts, or questions about this podcast. And again, be sure to subscribe. I'll see you all next week. To learn more about Rustic River Media, visit us online at rusticriver.media. Thanks for listening to the Filming with Josh podcast. Catch every episode by hitting subscribe today.